Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast friends. Welcome to the new bi-weekly radio hour with Jeff Rimsberg. Jeff, what's up? What's happening? Maybe weekly. We're going to see how busy we get with this. But we're we're going to start doing uh, our normal weekly guest chat with outside uh, investors, people. But we, th- we thought there's so many questions and ideas to do a radio chat. It's pretty easy. We can just come in here and BS. We may start doing it weekly, maybe bi-weekly. We'll see. This is the first one. The second one, actually. Really? Or, or potentially the third one. <laughs> We've done a lot before, but we haven't called it the radio hour yet. So it's not true. Uh, our last show notes is called the uh, Meb Faber Show Radio Hour, the Meb Faber Spinoff episode. Well, you know, look, I did that one from the hospital, so I've been in a state of sleep deprivation. So you got to forgive me. I don't really remember anything from the past month. Yeah, give us a baby update. Um, everything's great. Anton, Jackie, my wife, won out. So Anton. Meb and Gunner got nixed, which was what I wanted. Either one. She said no to both. So Anton Faber. Yeah, he's doing great. Piece of cake. I don't know what all the commotion's about. It seems easy to me. What's what's the source of Anton? Is that her literary uh, propensity? The etymology? Yeah. Is that the right word? Right. It actually means handsome warrior. <laughs> entrepreneur. A successful entrepreneur, handsome warrior. Who is destined to be a quarterback. Maybe maybe a center fielder. I don't know. We'll see what he likes. Oh, this is not a conversation. I want to continue on. <laughs> Me either. And I've had enough diapers for months. Uh, once again, given the whole radio show type format, we're going to dive into some of your uh, tweets of the week, some blog posts, some things that have been interesting to you. Yeah, you guys keep sending questions, by the way. Feedback at the Meb Favor Show. We tried to do a voicemail for you guys to call in and leave voicemails. But Jeff, I think we've gotten zero voicemails. Yeah, as of now, there's been right. no messages. You guys are too embarrassed to hear your voice on air, so we'll nix that. Send us emails, let us know. Uh, let's get started. Sounds good. All right, so the first thing uh, is basically valuation. So you had a few different tweets that covered, it's kind of like a Goldilocks situation. Your take on the current market is, it seems to be that we're overvalued, but... Uh, you think that we're going to have still have some growth, though somewhat anemic. Uh, James Montier came in far more pessimistic. He had some tweets about it would take a 50% drawdown to get the market back to fair value tomorrow. And then we had an interesting question from a reader. I'm just going to go ahead and read it to give everybody the flavor. It says, lately there seems to be a lot of talk about CAPE uh, not being as meaningful as many seem to think. Because the very low yields on bonds and the full pricing of bonds are basically changing the overall risk-adjusted returns landscape. I think the point people are trying to make is that stocks are fairly priced for the current overall market conditions, despite many indicators which suggest that prices are historically high. The thinking, I guess, is that historically bond yields being much higher than they are now 
attenuated equities, and now the push in equities is a reflection of the very anemic long-term outlook for bonds, and particularly where we are in the economic cycle today. So just pulling back, we have three sort of stages Fill us in. Where are we? How do you see all these? Sorry, I fell asleep. That was a long question. I don't even know if it was a question more, but let's just <laughs> want to talk about valuations kind of, you know, we just did a post called Cape Ratio. Why have thou forsaken me or something like that? I mean, people love talking about valuations. And I think one of the challenges is that people almost always talk about them incorrectly, come to incorrect conclusions. So for here's my example. So we published our original white paper on Cape, which I think was 2012, and eventually the book in 2013 or 14. We then said, hey, look, let, let's look and see how the performance has been for since what we published. I mean, this is all public information. You can look it up. We posted tables in the, in the book and white paper that showed current Cape valuations for all these countries. We tracked about 45. And then said, what are the total returns for all these countries since then? And it's worked exactly like you would expect. And we'll, we'll post a link in the show notes where... The expensive stuff did poorly. It was something like eight or nine of the ten expensive countries had a negative return over this period. What's the the? Expensive? I just said over twenty. What, so the the, what, what the top quartile. So the top twenty five percent. This is about ten countries. The ten most expensive, which happened to be, I think, countries that were over twenty valuation. Eight or nine had negative performance. The average performance of that bucket was minus two percent. And then, you know, that, that kind of normal range of valuations, which is 14 to 20, uh, had pretty, pretty solid returns. And then the cheap stuff was 12%, right? So, you know, the exact way you would expect it. Now, like anything, it looks like a scatter plot. So there's outliers. On the cheap stuff outliers, Greece, which we labeled Greece Barf, was the worst. Uh, the best was Ireland that just crushed it. And then on the expensive side, that, not that the big outliers were Colombia, which I labeled, you know, Meb gets booed out of the room because when I was giving presentations in Bogota, when it was trading, Colombian stock market was trading Cape Ratio of, I think, in the mid-30s, you know, it had a horrible return since. It's, it's been cut in half. And then the, the one, the big outlier, the only positive country trading above 20 at the time uh, was the U.S., which has done something like 80% since then. And so that minus 2% figure for the expensive stuff includes the U.S. doing 80. So you take out the U.S. and the expensive bucket got destroyed. And what most people do is they look at the U.S. stock market only and they say, hey, look, the U.S. has gone from a cape of 20 to 30. Therefore, valuations don't work. No, that's exactly how valuation works. And that's the way it's always worked. So usually the, the E, the earnings, doesn't bounce around that much. It's a lot less volatile than the P. So for usually for a market to go from a cape of 20 to 30, what happens? The P went up 50%. And for it to go from 30 to 40, the P needs to go up, uh, you know, the market go up another third. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. And so they, they also don't understand the flip side. So say you have a cheap market today. Let's call it any of these Eastern European countries that, that we love. Any like, so let's say Czech Republic, P of 10, Portugal 12, Italy at 14. So you, you may say, look, I like Spain at 14, who's been on fire. Spain has just been crushing it this year. Might be the best performing, one of the best performing stock markets in the world. But let's, let's call it a cape of 14 because it's increased over time. People say, hey, that's cheap. I'm going to buy it. Spain could easily get cut in half. And then that just means Spain is now a much better buy at a cape ratio of seven. So it's like a rubber band. That having been said, a lot of people approach valuations the wrong way. They don't think expensive can get more expensive and cheap can get cheaper. And we've talked about this a lot. And so we've done posts 
where we talk about you know poker and blackjack and, and it's a spectrum of possibilities. And we did a tweet the other day where we looked at expectations. So listeners, think to yourself in your head, what, what do you expect stocks to return for the next 5, 10 years? So you got a number. You can say it out loud if you want. There's been a lot of surveys lately, and the, and the surveys produce returns of stocks for 10.5%, roughly. There's some countries are higher, some countries are lower, but mostly it's around 10.5%. You know, that's because that's what his stocks historically have done ballpark. You know, it's closer to 10 or 9.5, I think. High nines. Real returns like 6.5 in the U.S., internationally 5. But we did a chart, and we said, look, we use the old Bogle valuation model which has John Bogle, founder of Vanguard, has three inputs, starting dividend yield, dividend growth, change in valuation. That's it. And you plug those numbers in historically, and you get a pretty accurate predictor of future 10-year returns. And you plug those in now, 2% dividend yield in the US will give you historical earnings growth, dividend growth, so 4.7%, and no valuation change, that gets you to 6.7%. Problem is, you know, for valuation to settle back down to normal levels of 17, you could even say as high as 21 with inflation, that means your returns can be 1% to 3%. So 3% better than bonds, but not much. 1% not great. And you're taking on a lot of volatility and potential drawdowns. But the whole point of this article, we said for stocks to match investor expectations, so 10.5% a year, means that valuation multiple needs to increase and it needs to increase over the next 10 years to the highest it's ever been in history. You know, we talk a lot about expectations and expectations for most investors are way too high. So for stocks to exceed expectations, it means valuations need to increase higher than the highest they've ever been in the bubble years of 1999. And so what are the chances of that happening? I would say pretty low. It's possible. What's more likely to happen? I think 1% to 3% returns. Plain devil's advocate, though. Let's let's talk about the um, the reader's question. He's talking about basically Cape being somewhat moot in the sense of uh, where bond yields are. So, as an analogy, you're a frequent fan of talking about how when companies began to return more money to shareholders through buybacks than dividend yield, it was a sort of a structural change in the industry. Are we at a point right now with bond yields as they are where it's a structural change and it affords a higher CAPE than it has in the past? A little bit, but not much. So historically, CAPE's been around 17 when CAPE or 16 and a half or something. When you have mild to low inflation of 1% to 3%, then this is globally, CAPE can get up to around 21 as an average, not 30. Okay, so yes, bonds have some impact, but not that much. It's, it's more of the feed, fear and greed of the marketplace. For the same reason you could say there's a lot of other countries in Europe that have much lower inflation and bond yields, and they trade at single-digit, low double-digit PEs. So people always make that argument, and then you say, well, okay, well, fine, what about Europe? And they're like, oh, well, no, Europe doesn't count because of X, you know, and, and they make the argument. But you can't really... I mean, and CAPE in a way are automatically in- incorporates bond yields already through, that's the whole cyclically adjusted part. So it's talking about inflation. That's why in this chart, we said, look, for CAPE to go back to an average of 21 means stock returns about 3%. To go back to full term average of 17 means stocks return 1%. But what do you think about Montier saying a drop of 50% for fair market value? 
I mean, it takes you back down to 15. It's happened in the past. I mean, you could go down 80%. It's happened in the past. In the 30s, you could have a caper ratio of five. I mean, it's happened in the past. I mean, look, I could think of plenty of scenarios where you could come up with a caper ratio of five. You're speaking way too logically. No reason the uh, pundits on CNBC hate having you on. You won't give them sound I mean, bites. You get, you, get, you get about four examples on Twitter every day of people's outrage, whatever it was, avocado toast, <laughs> men, men rompers, whatever Trump's saying of the day, and you tell me you can't think of a, a situation or valuations could go down to five. I Absolutely. But on the flip side, true. Elon Musk finds that the, the moon is made out of diamonds instead of cheese. Like, could you have a cape ratio of 45? Sure. I mean, it got to 90 in Japan, second largest economy in the world. It, it, as recently as the mid-2000s, it got into the 40s and 60s in India and China. So it's totally possible. But the way the world looks right now, this is a very simple takeaway. Most of the listeners are hugely overweight U.S. stocks. The simple takeaway is you've been given, if you're overweight U.S. stocks, you've been given the biggest gift ever post-2009. So you've had U.S. outperformance, which never happens by this much for this long. So you should be plowing money into foreign stocks. Hopefully you read my book and started doing it. Capes had awesome returns in 2013, 2015, 16, 17. It's printed roughly using this approach. 20% returns last year. I think it's 20% returns this year already. The one stinker year, which was hugely stinker, was 2014. But so if you're still overweight U.S. stocks, you're, you've been given this chance every quarter for the past four years, you should have at least half in foreign and arguably more. All right. One of the Twitter questions uh, is, uh, which cheap countries are uh, you most interested in right now? So, you know, you talk about uh, there's a lot cheaper out there. Give me a few names. Pe- you know, people want valuation to work on the time frame of like week or month you know we publish on the this on the idea farm once a quarter and already i think that's too much i think you only need this once a year if you update this once a quarter it actually hurts performance and if you look at a global value approach this only has like 15 percent turnover for the past number of years because most of the cheap countries like russia needs to double or triple before it even comes out of the, the this cheap bucket the way the world looks, you know, foreign emerging is cheaper than foreign developed, but ironically, about half of the super cheapest is foreign developed. So the cheapest bucket is at a cap ratio of around 10, you know, foreign emerging 13 or 14, foreign developed, the mid to high teens, and the U.S. is at 30. The U.S. is the second most expensive country in the world, uh, right up there with India and Denmark, but India is not bad. So some of the cheapest countries, Czech Republic, Portugal, Russia, Italy, Poland, Brazil, Spain, Greece, Singapore, Turkey, Norway, Austria, Hungary, Egypt, and then China, Colombia. All those, like, so all those are actually pretty cheap. And then you have a, a plenty that are reasonable. That whole 14 to 20 zone is totally reasonable. Like, it's not awful. It's hitting 30 is a pretty strong yellow flashing light. Hitting 40, I see no reason to own that market ever. Well, hey, while we're on this, uh, another Twitter question. How do you avoid value traps when investing in the cheap countries? Or do you not care as much as time will eventually make the trade work? It's yes to both. So it depends on what you're doing. You know, If you're setting up an equity program and all you care about is being long equities, then it's simply rebound, accept the drawdowns, and move on. You know, for the for the personality, and we've talked about this a million times, who's more interested in buying the cheap stuff. We'll talk about what our bud Steve Sugaru talked about, which is simply 
buying the cheap stuff once it enters an uptrend, and then he puts on trailing stops. And that's a totally reasonable way to go about investing. So say, hey, look, I'm only going to buy Russia once it's above its 200-day moving average and update it once a month. And if it falls below, I'm going to sell it and then move on. Same thing. But you know, a lot of these countries, this is we've been talking about this for a long time now. I've been giving speeches on this since 2013. And for the first few years of the speech, I said, look, we're in a world, the best possible scenario is when value and trend intersect, when the cheap stuff has the momentum and is going up. And that's not the way the world looked until about summer of 2016. Whether that was interest rates bottoming in the US, whether it's just who knows what we'll be able to know in hindsight, foreign really started to outperform then. And it's been on a monster tear then. But a lot of these countries still haven't had the huge moves. So you're still in a really cheap bucket. So I think there's still a lot of room to run. And even Jeff Gunlock, you know, just came on his Iris own presentation, uh, you know, had a double line and said, look, my, my best trade idea right now is long emerging markets, short US. And I agree. I mean, that's a huge uh, and very basic, simple trade. They're both an uptrend still, but one is a lot more expensive than the other. Do you evaluate the length of these trades on uh, full economic cycles, like seven to nine years, or is there a different way to look at it? I mean, people are going to look at it daily, weekly, monthly. You know, Morningstar looks at three-year track records usually. But yeah, I mean, it, it valuation is a very blunt tool. It takes long time frames. So, you know, like anything can underperform in any given year, even even couple, two, three, four years. But uh, over time, I, I can't think of a better way to do it. Like, what are you going to do? Buy expensive countries? That's just that's no, no, stupid. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how... What degree of zeroing in you do? You mentioned Spain earlier. It's been on a tear. Would you have any reticence about investing in Spain, given how much it's climbed in such a recent amount or such a short amount of time? No. I mean, I mean, again, that's the whole point of what is your methodology. So ours is we update it once a year, and anything more than that is too much. And so a couple names will come out, and a couple names will go in. I mean, I mean, who knows if you had really big time chaos, you may have more than that, but but it usually is not that much turnover. And usually the turnover is the names on the periphery. So like China is cheap, but it's not as cheap as Russia. So China, you know, may move out of the cheapest bucket, but not by much. You posted a chart about uh, Cape ratios comparing Japan and U.S. And it was for bubbles. But you mentioned that they both bottomed out around 13. Where are you on Japan right now? Are you liking it? I, I love talking about Japan because it's not some backwater. You know, the challenge of using Cape with some really small countries is, is a lot of these countries don't have a massive economy or stock market. So Greece, for example, or Czech Republic, you don't have 2,000 stocks in there. You may have 20, you know. And so, but Japan at one point was, till very recently, the world's second largest economy. I think it's now third after China. But at one point in um, the 80s, it was the world's largest stock market. And for the older reader listeners will remember this, younger won't, but so Japan went through the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the 80s, hit a Cape ratio of 95, had two decades terrible performance, everyone wrote off Japan forever, zombie banks, deflation, all their problems, and essentially took two decades for that to work off. It eventually bottomed at a Cape ratio of 13 a few years ago, and then what happened, if you remember, Japan was the best-performing stock market in the world, and has crept back up. I think it's at a valuation in the low 20s now. So not screaming cheap, but not awful, and then certainly better than the U.S., but, you know, it's, it's just interesting because you, you look at, like, the magnitude of a bubble, and so Japan's, again, in the 90s, took two decades. The U.S., 
which was uh, hit a value of 45 in late 90s. And it's, it's weird that both of them, by the way, occurred end of a decade and literally at the end of the year, at the end of the decade, on like the last month. It was, you know, an odd, an odd, um, odd piece of history. Anyway, the U.S. peaked in the late 90s. 99, December 99, and then it only took us uh, eight years to get back to normal valuation. So it hit 17, then sailed down through and also bottomed at 13 in March 2009. A lot of people probably weren't buying that. And, you know, no one was saying, man, look how great Cape works. You're buying cheap U.S. stocks in March of 2009 because everyone thought the world was going to end and, you know, the the banking system was never going to exist. But the fact of the matter was U.S. stocks were cheap. We talk about Japan and you know, they have demographic issues. Uh, we talk about the U.S. interest rates, low interest rates. Is there ever a situation in which you're going to reevaluate CAPE as being effective? Is there ever a paradigm shift in which you're going to lose as much confidence in it? Like, like any good researcher, I'm open to ideas. So if someone was to come to me and say, hey, look, Here's an input to your model that quantitatively could improve it or impact the efficacy of it. I'm totally on board with that. You know, I, I, I totally foresee, I mean, we've learned a lot about CAPE in the ensuing years. For example, you know, a lot of other people publishing, Jesse Livermore, our friends at Star Capital in Germany, you know, publishing a lot more analytics on the, the vagaries of MSCI's universe. So there's a MSCI cap weighted as well as investable market universe, which is much more expanded. And it doesn't matter for 99% of the country, you know, 90% of the countries, but some of the smaller ones, for example, it does make a difference. Now, it doesn't change the conclusion, but so Greece, for example, depending on which index you look at, has a CAPE ratio of two or like minus 10 um, because of the earnings. Now, that's one reason we don't just use earnings. We use four or five other long-term valuation metrics like dividend yield, cash flow, price to book, all those, because any given market may have a structural oddity. You know, Australia, for example, because of incentives has a higher dividend yield, you know, so it's things like that. So we use a valuation composite. So Greece still falls in the cheap bucket no matter what, but you learn some of these things and you incorporate them. Um, so if someone's to say, look, we can, here's how you can incorporate demography. And so I know Research Affiliates talks about a lot about this, as does GMO, and they have ways that they incorporate it. And so Research Affiliates paired with PIMCO has put out a lot of good research here. But I don't have anything that's found to be particularly useful that improves upon it from econometric time series, but we're open to it. All right. Well, why don't we switch out of this subject and move on to our second one. Uh, We're going to go from macro now to micro. A new study by finance professor Hendrik Bessembinder called Do Stocks Outperform Treasury Bills found that while investing in the overall stock market makes sense, individual stocks resemble lottery tickets. A very small percentage of winning stocks have done splendidly, but when gains and losses are tallied up over their lifetimes, most stocks haven't earned any money at all. What's more, 58% of individual stocks since 1926 have failed to outperform one-month treasuries over their lifetimes. So there's a little more here, but let's just jump in right now. You're obviously not surprised by this. Bev, why would anybody knowing this uh, continue to pick individual stocks and not just go to ETFs? I mean, it explains so much about stock investing in the past 100 years. And that the main draw, what makes most people salivate is the Amazon, right? Where it goes up 40,000% and people get rich. And they see that 
and they forget about or don't know about the thousands of other stocks that have gone to zero. And it's the same with the economy. You think about restaurants in your local neighborhood. How many restaurants have been around for 10 years? Probably very few. How many have turned over? I mean, we have one local spot in Manhattan Beach that's probably been 10 different restaurants in 10 years. You know, it's, it's, it's capitalism, and that's beauty, and it's, it's that creative destruction. So there's a couple takeaways. One is that concentration, like a, like a Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, can build extreme wealth, but it has the, the flip side, and the odds are against you. It's, it's kind of like the lottery ticket. You know, there's a number of ways to protect yourself. The simplest is own everything. The good part about owning everything, which is market cap weighted index like the S&P 500, is you are guaranteed to own Amazon. You're guaranteed to own Exxon and Walmart and all these other big McDonald's, all these other huge winners over the years. You're also guaranteed to own all the losers. The good news is the losers become a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall fund as they get as they lose um, market cap. So it's a, it's a basic trend-following index. and that's, that's I would never have expected you to be advocating for market cap right now. It is a good first step. <laughs> it is a trend-following index, and most people don't know that. So it is a good first stop. Now, the problem with it is it has no tether to or no anchor to value. And so there's some very simple deviations from market cap you could do, such as equal weighting, Valuating on things like price to book or price to earnings that historically have skewed you to outperform market cap weighting by a percent or two a year, right? And so the problem comes is that, and, and there's so many of these multi uh, factor type of funds, you know, we run shareholder yield, we run some others, is that it still gives you a shotgun approach. So you may own 50, 100, 200 names out of 2,000, but hopefully you're owning the better ones. Now you're still, that's pretty concentrated, but that's what you have to pay for. If you own more than say a hundred, you're starting to look a, a lot like the broad indices, which you can buy these days for like five basis points at 0.05% for an index mutual fund or ETF. But these are all good things. And so, you know, look, I, I think market cap weighting is a great first step. I think you can do better. The, the big challenge is you need to avoid... Um, paying too much, and, but, but but this also describes the whole high fee, what's traditionally become, been called active industry, is the hope and the dream of picking these winners. And when you do, you do have the mass massive outperformance, you know. And so it's it's kind of goes back to the the whole monkey throwing darts and everything else. Is that it is very enticing to think you can pick these huge winners. It's just really hard. Yeah, I've got just to scare the readers a little bit further. I've got to read this. It said that a mere four percent of the stocks in the entire market, headed by ExxonMobil, followed by Apple, General Electric, Microsoft, and IBM, they accounted for all of the net market returns from 1926 through 2015. By contrast, the most uh, common single stock result for an individual stock over that period was a return of nearly negative 100 percent. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of this goes back to our old friends at Blackstar, now Longboard, um, Eric Crendon, who was on the show that put out the study that we cited so much called Capitalism Distribution. JP Morgan didn't did the study. And then um, this professor, and I hope and assume he cited Longboard, but for some reason, no one would ever cite them. It used to drive me crazy because it's, it's kind of bad behavior not to. So I assume they did. 
but but if they didn't, Longboard was the first one we'd ever seen publish this. And it just goes to show why stock picking is so hard, you know, and it's fun, particularly when you get one right, but it's it's a really the, the numbers are stacked against you. To what extent would you factor this into an asset allocation model where everybody's got a little bit of a gambling bone? So would you allocate some money to single stock selection purely as sort of just a, you know, a Vegas type pool? Look, if it keeps you interested and it's fun, you want to put 5% of your money in it or 10%, whatever, you know, but, but you should assume that you're going to get S and P or worse would be my, like what I would tell most people having seen, hundreds of friends and clients that have their fun account, you know, um, very rarely do, you know, and it could, and then here's the challenge. It, it, it also incentivizes a little bit of bad behavior. And this goes back to the classic, you know, it, you know, investor, he's like, Hey, look, I've outperformed, like we, we'll get emails like this. Well, people are like, Hey, why would I invest with you guys over the last six months? I've owned this and I've outperformed you. Why would I hire you? And I'm like, look, you keep compounding at 50%. You'll be the next Stevie Cohen. I'm. You should keep doing what you're doing. I have no interest in you hiring us. But but this could go on for years, right? And so, you know, it's also I think a big mistake where a lot of investors will try out quote two advisors, and I think that's fine if they try them out from the standpoint of personality and process and and how they work with them. But the worst thing they can do is the the performance horse race. So like, all right, I'm going to have two advisors and pit them against each other. And the, the one that does better wins. Well, the irony is that you should probably flip them, you know, after two or three years, the one that's done worse. Well, let me qualify that. Assuming they have a sound investment approach. If they're just out doing crazy things and you're betting on, you know, their, their abilities, I have no idea, but, but a lot of people chase performance. And we've talked about this a thousand times. Anybody listening to this right now should have uh, already listened to the uh, Jason Sue episode that just came out in which you guys talked about this, where pretty much you're buying into the managers after seeing them do well, only to see underperformance the subsequent years when you should be buying the people who've done the worst and then getting the uptrend. Yeah. I mean, so look, if you, if you want to pick stocks and, and, it, and it keeps you interested and it's fun more power to you. I would never recommend it to individuals or institutions for real money, what serious is, money. What is the last single stock you ever bought? Oh my God. Um, I mean, I, I have thousands of tales of this growing up. And I think the first one I ever bought, I mean, I have a postcard after my dad passed, we were going through all this old, he kept everything. And so there's a postcard I'd written him from camp when I was, you know, like 10. I was like, Hey dad, I think we should buy some Disney. And, um, God, what were the other two? You were buying stocks at 10. I was recommending them. I didn't have any money to buy them, but what we a, talked about it all the time. Nerd. And if you, and if it was funny, cause I then, I then went and plotted it out my three quote recommendations versus the market and they crushed it. So I should have just stuck with my advice as a uh, camper at camp seagull and, in whatever year this was. But I mean, I, I, I very like, that's how I learned. I mean, I remember buying Lucent L U and coming home every day from internship when I was working at Lockheed and getting the newspaper and, and seeing what Lucent did on the day. Or, I mean, that's really what I started to learn about stocks. I had nothing to do in my internship well, we've talked about this. Ironically, that's the wrong way. Everybody learns via single stocks sure. versus the rules, the historical returns. And the problem is you get stuck in a regime like you've been in the last eight years. And then there's all these millennials who there was some stat where Robinhood, which is the free trading brokerage, which is now a unicorn. But Robinhood, it's something like half 
of all of its investors, and there's like a million investors on Robinhood, bought Snapchat the day of the IPO. Feeling so for now. 99% of them are all underwater, right? Um, so, but, but, but that's how people learn. Cause they like the, if you've been investing in US stocks the last eight years, they've only gone one way. And that's, I mean, so it's good in a way, but, but it's also, you may not learn the correct, correct lessons, which is why you and I debate about this so much. And we talk about what is the best resource. And, and if you're still listening at this point, if you haven't crashed your car or fallen asleep, uh, I would love to hear our listeners. If you were to give a college graduate, or someone interested in investing, just one book, mine are excluded, so you can't get mine. Give someone just one book, what would it be? Email us, I would love to hear, because we really struggle with that. And you know, trying to teach an investor the curriculum or the craft of investing, it's kind of a scattered mishmash of of resources. I don't know of a single one. It's interesting. My dad, you know, brilliant guy, very smart man, and He's owned U.S. equities for a long time, but just hadn't really thought much of it. And I was talking to him, I don't know, a month or two ago about investing, and he was making the point, well, I don't really know what to do now. The market's up so high. Uh, what do I do? I said, well, you know, Dad, there's a world outside of the U.S. You know, In fact, if you look at – and sort of give him stats about the coin flip, about performance, underperformance – and his takeaway was, wow, you've just opened my eyes to a world I knew nothing about. And I wonder how many investors out there really are so myopically focused on just the U.S. They've never learned broad, more broadly the basics of a global marketplace. It's, and most, some of, it's most I talk to. And we, you, you, you need to tell Dadberg to listen to the podcast. <laughs> Dadberg, if you're listening. Yeah, he's too um, busy visiting the grandkids down in Atlanta. Yeah. So, I mean, look, so I, I think it's a big need and, and it's uh, it's a high hurdle. You know, we, like going back to the expectations we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast where people are assuming 10.5% returns. Well, most millennials are assuming that because they've never known otherwise. And yeah. so it's reasonable. Like, it's like, I, I'm not saying this and looking down upon people and saying... Oh, you're so stupid for not knowing this. It is a very high hurdle in a you know multi-year process to learn this. I wish they taught personal finance in high school, in college, and investing, but there's no good resource. So I, I, this may be a summer project for well, us. Think about the difference. All the millennials right now, think about the difference in everyone throwing money into Snapchat versus salivating over Spain. I mean, long term, I mean, it's, it's a night and day difference. But yeah, you have to have somebody teach those principles to begin with. Yeah. All right, let's hop on to the next topic, volatility. So you had a chart here that showed uh, volatility dating back to 1928. And uh, let's see here, what does it say? Actual U.S. volatility, only been lower 3% of trading days. So we are pretty quiet right now. So I'm curious, how do you interpret this? Does this mean that a reversion is likely or is it the opposite, that basically we're going to continue with the trend of low volatility? And then more importantly, is there an action step or is this just a novel, good piece of data? So let's talk about volatility a little bit. So one is that, and, and I kind of laugh because I, I tend to hate on Tony Robbins a lot, but it, we had listened to his podcast or something a month or two ago. And he was like, and these times of exploding volatility. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is one of the least volatile markets of all time, literally of all time. But, but that's what sound good, you know, and you, and you get on TV and you start making these sound bites there's about 10 sound bites that I, I want to get an intern to do like a John Oliver style mashup where it's just people on CNBC saying like the same 10 things over and over again, regardless of whether they're true or not. Anyway, so volatility 
you know, it tends to be pretty mean reverting and it, it peaks in crises, right? So 2008, 1987, the Great Depression, volatility goes crazy. We published research that shows uh, called Where the Black Swans Hide that volatility can stay low for years. And typically that's in an uptrend, which is where we are now. Eight-year bull market, volatility can stay low for a very long period with, with fits and starts, right? But when volati- where volatility really increases is when the downtrend starts. I forget the exact numbers. I'll have to look it up in our research, but the volatility increases by something like a third or half uh, when market is below its 200-day moving average, 10-month moving average versus when it's above. And there's a lot of behavioral and psychological reasons why when people start losing money they use a different part of their brain you know there's this flight response and all these things that happen and so it's consistent in all these markets around the world what are the takeaways the one takeaway is that very high volatility is also just coincident with markets puking so you can take a step back and it's very simple and low volatility is often when markets are just chugging higher like they are now in the u.s you know, it's, it's the main reason in my mind why trend following works. You move from a period of uptrend, which is low vol and high returns, to a downtrend, which is high vol and low returns. And so if you just sit out those periods, you can end up compounding at a, at a much higher rate. So right now, like the signal is when the market rolls over. Until then, it's, it's you know, it's fine in the US. It's the warning side with valuations. I just posted my favorite childhood painting to twitter which i just bought and should show up today and we're going to hang in the office it is a bev doolittle painting called doubled back if you've never seen it it's a picture in the snow bev doolittle is a famous western artist who does these paintings where there's often a little bit of hidden imagery so there's a track with some bushes on both sides you can see a bear track leading away and if you don't look closely in the in the brush is a huge grizzly bear and it's the coolest painting. But but it's funny, I tweeted about it yesterday, and I'm pretty sure 90% of the people never saw the bear. And so my joke was, I'm like, I'm hanging this in the office. I think it's pretty good description of where we are right now, which is valuation are high, but we're still in an uptrend, and the bear's lurking. The bear hasn't pounced yet, right? You're not getting mauled yet, but he's there. So it's kind of like the yellow flashing light. So volatility, look, this could... This market we're in could last for years like this, you know, low, decent returns, uptrend. But where you really want to start to get cautious is when uh, the market's below the below the long term trend. Have you done any studies looking at volatility, like the VIX in particular, that sort of juxtaposes the average with the median? I, th- I think a lot of people kind of get confused and they think uh, they they look at sort of the VIX right now and it's oh it's so low. But I feel like you know when it spikes higher, it spikes big time. So it skews at long-term averages north, although median VIX levels probably yeah, I mean, stay a lot lower than people realize. You know, it can spike to 20 regularly. It can spike to 40 when stuff is really hitting the fan, and that that is pretty rare. And then it can spike up to you know the even higher when it it totally hits the fan, which is you know Great Depression, 1987 global financial crisis. Do you see VIX purely as a coincident indicator or is there any value in using it as a... I think there's research that's been shown that that can tease out signals from VIX, you know, and, and volatility is not my deep expertise, but from the basics is that at extremes, it's mean reverting. So when volatility is... I mean, yes, it's coincident in many ways, but I, there's a lot of people... Look, I mean, 
as evidenced by these dozens of nonsensical VIX funds <laughs> that will lose you 99% of your money faster than anything else out there. You know, there's there's a lot of people that use volatility and trade it, but in many ways, you know, and it goes back to the old 10 day best days myth, which drives me nuts, which I just did this UCLA conference and one of the panelists referenced it and they said, well, the reason you can't do any market timing is that if you just miss the 10 best days in the market, your return gets decimated, which is true. But they also neglect to say what happens if you miss the 10 worst days. If you miss the 10 worst days, your return is massive. And actually, here's my favorite stat. If you miss both the 10 best and worst, your return is higher than normal. And the reason being, guess where, and I think we were the first to publish this, but guess where all the best and worst days happen? They happen in a downtrend. And they happen in a downtrend because simply the volatility has expanded. So people don't know what to do. So markets whipsawing all over the place. But if you can avoid both, you compound at a higher rate because you avoid these what we call volatility gremlins. Uh, a Twitter question came in uh, asking for more information about a type of tail risk strategy, uh, which you've referenced some tying into volatility here. Do you have any, any takeaways on yeah, more I mean, details? Thinking about tail risk, so good paper AQR put out that was critical about tail risk strategies called pathetic puts. And when you're thinking about hedging or protecting a traditional portfolio, so let's say a U.S. stock portfolio, you know, there's a lot of ways to hedge. And we talked about this in an article where we said, the stock market is risky for investors. It's four times as risky for advisors. And in that, we laid out why we thought, but we said there's different ways to hedge. The first is don't take the risk in the first place. So if you own 100% of stocks and you want to hedge it, own 50%, right? Don't take the risk. Second is you can diversify, you can own bonds, you can own global equities, foreign bonds, real estate commodities, all those things help to diversify. But as evidenced by 2008-9, when it hits the fan, they may not. And then there's some active strategies historically like managed futures and trend following that work great to hedge. But again, none of those are guaranteed. One usually guaranteed way to hedge is buying puts because that is a direct bet on stocks going down as well as volatility increasing. So one of the problems is most people think about that and they buy like one month puts. And the problem with that is that you have a huge time decay and it's very expensive. It's like buying insurance on a house or a car or life insurance. It's a cost. So the, the best way we think to do it is to buy 12-month puts or, or around that number, could be even longer, and pair it with like uh, 10-year bonds, which historically already were a good hedge to stocks puking. But would you be rolling monthly? or would You could you- roll monthly, quarterly, whenever. But we have a fund that does this. But so yeah, so it, but the takeaway is that it's it's a net cost. But we see you, could, you can see it, particularly now where bond yields are low, you can see it as a bond replacement. So it's like you're getting bonds plus puts. Adding it all the time is going to be a cost, right? And it's going to reduce your risk and volatility and drawdown, but in good times, it's a cost. So the best way we think to add a tail risk strategy is in the bad times. Well, you say, well, Meb, obviously, thank you. If I could buy puts before 1987, that would have been brilliant. But more importantly, it's we just described a time when you could kind of predict or historically at least forecast when volatility is going to be higher and returns lower. And that's when you're below the trend. So if you had a simple system such as investing in stocks, switching to bonds plus puts when the the stock market is below its long-term trend, historically, that's been a good time to do that. You know, it worked great in the 2000, 2003 bear market. It worked great in 08 and 09. But there's other examples that are very binary that 
it may or may not work. 1987 is a good example. I mean, nothing would have exploded in value more than puts in 1987. And if you had the 200-day moving average or lower, you would have been in bonds and puts. And I think it's if you had 200-day moving average or higher, you would have been in stocks. So you would have had a very different outcome. And had we been managing money in 1987, we would either be out of business or managing $100 billion by now. But the whole point is that, like, so you could either own them full-time and guarantee protection. I can't say guarantee, but very, very likely that it's going to help, but it's going to be a net cost. Or if you want to do the best way, probably, is, is tactically. What, what, it, what are the metrics on this? Let's say you put uh, 10, 5% of your portfolio into a tail risk well, type so, strategy. So and if then you think about tail risk, if you did it where you're buying puts, and the way that we talk about it is you're allocating 1%. Uh, so if you own a million bucks in stocks, if you allocate 1% a month to buying puts, so that would be 10 grand a month. So over 12 months, you would own a portfolio that you spend, theoretically, you could spend up to 12%. But the reality is, as you're rolling those, it's really not ever a 12% cost. You know, Usually it's much less. And so if you pair it with bonds, so let's say you do a portfolio, so ignore a stock trade, you do a portfolio of 10-year bonds paired with that put strategy, you end up with roughly 0% return. And if you did it with bills, I mean, and it fluctuates based on the time frame. It's anywhere from probably plus 2 to minus 2%. So it's a net zero. So it's not a cost, the good news, because the puts, the cost of the puts are, are balanced out by the yield of the bonds. Okay. So it's kind of a net net sort of zero. There's times when it yields higher, there's time when it yields less. If you didn't use bonds and you use bills or just straight up cash, it would be lower. But bonds, histor- I don't know why you wouldn't use bonds because they've been historically a good hedge anyway. So historically, that's a one-to-one roughly. Like if the stock market did minus 30%, I would expect that portfolio to do 30 or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Although it, it, it doesn't really work out on the negative side, but usually you have you know kind of more smaller losses. Like if stocks did 30, I wouldn't expect that portfolio to do minus 30 unless it's a period where bonds got crushed. Usually the time when the tail risk hedging loses money is is on the back end of a huge run-up. So it would be like late 09 or late 2003 or 4, after it's already gone up 50%. You know, it's kind of like a mountain. You make sense? So like, well, like, yeah, but I'm wondering, how much, does, how much does Vega affect this? Let's say that, uh, you know, you're buying puts, market gets a little bit more volatile, and all of a sudden your put pricing, you know, shoots up to the roof, although there's not as much uh, drawdown in the market. Are you suddenly taking it, you know, far worse than before? The the example almost always where this strategy loses has a big drawdown is after a huge run up. Right? Which makes sense because like let's say nineteen eighty seven, think about it. So puts had amazing performance. Mm-hmm. But then as volatility settles back down, as stocks eventually recover you know, that's where you're on the back sloping side of that. So the worst idea probably would be to buy a tail risk strategy after a 50% move up in that strategy because the the event has already happened. Now, what, what are most people going to do? We, I mean, we know from experience, people will probably put on a tail risk strategy at the worst possible time and vice versa. The vast majority of the time, it's probably a great strategy to short, you know, not, not the bonds, but, but, but the puts mm-hmm. because you're buying protection. But so you want to be buying it when, I mean, look, it's, it's a, my opinion, and we talked about this when I just added 10, 10% of my portfolio in this strategy, it makes sense to me to be buying protection when stocks are expensive, when volatility is low, when you have a long bear market, 
And then when you really want to be adding protection is what we call when the match has been lit, when you start to see smoke. And in my mind, the signal for that is when the trend goes into a downtrend. All right, what, what happens just hypothetically? Three more years of bull market, and you've been buying puts for the next three years. Are you going to get out, throw your hands up, and say, forget it? Or are you going to double down then? How no, I'm perfectly – I mean, I, I, I approach it for me the same exa- – I would rebounce. So if, they, if it's probably flat, which is what I expect, or loses a, up to maybe 5% a year – like that's kind of meaningless to me. That's you're, cash. You're burning through little Anton's college fund. I'm ha- I am well. His his college fund will probably go all into cheap cape stocks. So it's a good <laughs> hedge. I mean, it's like my my 401k. I have no choices because of the way we've set ours up. We can't have Cambria funds, so I just put it all in the Vanguard Emerging Markets. Like that's my only like of the choices. Anyway, but so yeah. I mean, I'm told uh, the good news is in that scenario. The rest of the portfolio is probably doing 5, 10, 20%. So this this cost is is kind of meaningless. Um, I, I would probably double my position when the U.S. stock market goes into a downtrend. Because you got to remember, for me, we talked about this, my portfolio is Trinity 3, which is globally diversified, has a ton in foreign equities and markets. Like good times, I would expect those those markets to have great performance. And it's kind of like the gunlock hedge. It's like I'm by definition, pretty heavy everything else and bearish on the U.S. And we have lots of funds and strategies that trend falling will reduce exposure to the U.S. when it starts to go down. Whether that's 2017, 2020, 2030, who knows? All right. Well, moving on, next subject. Uh, let's quickly touch on sentiment. Not a ton to talk about here, but there was a stat that you had posted um, where – Bulls in the Investors Intelligence Survey are at 58.7%, and values of 60% are rare. You know, it's uh, it was made me think of Steve Sugaru talking about sort of the cocktail party chatter indicator. It's one of his own personal things where he heals, you know, hears people at the party talking about getting into stocks. You know, he knows it's time to get out. That was just mentioned in passing. He didn't say that recently. But where are you right now in terms of how you're viewing sentiment? Are you hearing anything new? Are you uh, hearing anything that makes you want to get out? Yeah, I mean, you you start to see some silliness. I mean, uh, in general, but it's not like full euphoria like the '90s. So you see some you see some things over the past few years where you scratch your head and say, "Okay, that's really stupid." But it's not quite like the '90s. So there's a post we did on the blog, which was from Luthold, which referenced this investor's intelligence. It was a few years ago when it was also very high. And if you looked at an average of the investor's intelligence over the course of a year and then sorted them by years, this goes back to the 60s, by the way, this uh, study. And you looked at the top 10 highest and the top 10 lowest, no surprise, the top 10 highest ebullient sort of excitement had the lowest stock returns the next year and the highest or the lowest uh, bullishness had the highest returns the next year. And so we published this a few years ago. What year did the U.S. have crappy stock returns? Like 20... I can't even remember at this point. 2015? Was it 2015? Oh. Anyway. Sounds about right. Yeah. So not, not good. But so in 20... The year prior, it was really high bullishness. And so at extremes, it makes sense. And the, our favorite thing that we give in speeches is the AAII bullishness. The peak bullishness for equities was in December 1999 or January 2000. I mean, like you literally couldn't make that up. And the, the peak bearishness was... March 2009. Like, it literally could not be the worst opposite way to do it. And so right now, it's just it's interesting because the investor's intelligence is much higher than the AAII. 
So the AI maybe is a little more retail. It's interesting because if you look at their survey, it's not crazy yet for equities. But if you look at the asset allocation of the members, is they're overweight equities. So it's a little bit of like, I don't know what else to do. But but the overweight also just goes with the flow of what the market's up to. So the market's up for eight years. They're, they're higher allocation just because their portfolio has drifted. Can you think of a U.S. bull market that ended without going through the euphoria stage? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's probably a bunch, but I would, you would have to get a chart in front of me and talk about it. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm curious sure about that. If, if you can kind of use retail sentiment. I mean, usually, look, like, like one of my favorite books is um, that I've read recently. It's called The Great Depression, and it was written by a guy who was a lawyer and was just, uh, it was a diary. So he's not an economist, but reading it is, is, is such an awesome view into what was going on during that time. But so you, you read depictions of the 1920s, you read depictions of the nifty 50 and the 50s bull market. And, you know, there's so many things that rhyme, you go back and read the bubbles of extraordinary popular delusions, the madness of crowds, one of the best books ever on on the topic. Um, And there's a few other bubble books, you know, usually, yes, that is a coincident indicator. But I, I don't think it's a requirement. You know, there's been so much trauma for investors having gone through two huge bear markets over the past decade that, I, you know, I, I don't know that you have to see this euphoria to, to get a peak. You know, you could just muddle along for 10 years at 2% returns and who knows? Who knows? All right, last topic, then let's wind this down. Uh, you tweeted U.S. stocks, U.S. stock outperformed bonds by 2.2% a year over the last 40 how much outperformance has come since 2009? All of it. So, you know, this is a fascinating stat, but uh, how do you interpret it in terms of an actionable takeaway? Or is it simply, hey, too bad if you weren't in stock since 2009? Is there anything more for us here? Well, you know, it's funny to watch the reactions people have to certain comments and tweets because everyone has their own sort of bias. So you have like the equity guys who kind of flip out and then you have other guys who are like, you know, the fed is a secret society that is going to take over the world, you know, the Illuminati or something. And everyone has their own kind of take, but it's just facts, right? It's just, I'm just repeating facts. And there's been two other periods where U S equities have underperformed bonds for 20 years. And the data is a little more sketchy, but in the 19th century, they underperformed for like 70 So there's no guarantee that equities are going to outperform bonds. And then there's plenty of other foreign countries that have gone equally as long where there's no equity premium. People just assume that in the U.S. because you had this one of the most amazing centuries for, and particularly a country and economy like ever, you know? And so, but even then you had these periods of 20 to 40 years where there's essentially zilch for equities over bonds. So there's a lot of takeaways for that is that, you know, for for very long periods, asset classes and investments can go through different cycles of underperformance, outperformance, the the huge bull market set the stage for bears and vice versa. You know, it's like circle of life, Jeff. Um, But it was just a fact. So, you know, it's a good example. And so we referenced an Arnott study and in it, they had mentioned, I, I think it's called like the biggest myth in investing or something. And they're talking about this topic, but they said, you go back to 1900 in four 
of the top 15 market cap countries went to zero. Equity markets went to zero in the 20th century. And I usually only reference two, which is China and Russia, because, you know, communist uh, governments shut down the equity market. So you just essentially lost all your money. But there was two others. And one, I think, was Argentina, and one was maybe Egypt. And then there's a handful of others that essentially lost all your money, like Germany and Japan, you know, through and then, you know, through hyperinflation, through wars, whatever it may be, you know, the safest thing you can do in that scenario is certainly have the the globally diversified set. So that, hey, if you're a Cyprus investor, invested all your money in Cypriot stocks, well, tough darts, you just lost 99%. So you have you have a global portfolio, but also don't become too wedded to one asset class. You know, if, if you can go 40 years or 70 years with stocks underperforming bonds, like, that's a lifetime. You know, stocks for the long run for most people, like that's measured on lifetime. That's not measured on one or two years. So I think that's hard for people. Back to your concept for Meb's Forever Fund, where you listeners can give Meb a chunk of money and he gives you a contract claiming never to return it for 40 or 50 years. You know, we got some good responses from that. Some interesting ideas. You know, one of the original ideas was, is it like, hey, we're going to charge 0%, but it's going to be a declining penalty if you withdraw. So like, like it's going to be in 10, 10 year increments. So you can in, invest in the forever fund for 10 years. And if you take money out in year one, you're going to get a 10% penalty and then it, and then it declines all the way to 10 years. And then a, a, an interesting twist to that was like, Hey, not only that, will rebate the penalty to all the other people who stayed. Yeah, I like the idea of the escrow account where the right. people stick around. So get they get the an extra juice. bump. So not only is there no fee, but they're benefiting from other people's lack of discipline. And there's a flip side to that, which was you invest in the fund, it's a 0% management fee, there's going to be a 10% load up front, which you, again, which just, just gets escrowed. And so over 10 years, you get it back at the end of 10 years, but you also get everyone else's if they leave. You should publish all the investors and have it be an amazing uh, chess game. Public shame. But like, like I, I, the second idea, I think, is even better to get people to behave, right? So that you, you not only get your full return at the end, no fee, you, you get a benefit from other people acting like idiots. Like, that's what a great idea. But right. how do we stru- you structure that as a mutual fund or as a pri- I guess it would have to be a private fund. If any listeners out there like this, write in. Let if you us want to know. seed this with $10 million, we'll get it started otherwise. But but it kind of puts your money where your mouth is. Everyone I know is like the, the funniest reactions though were for people there were such bad reactions that were the naysayers. One guy was like, Well, how are you gonna respond to market changes? I'm like, Well, that's the whole point, <laughs> is that you have a methodology and you stick with it. All anyway. right, that's it for me. You got anything else? No, nothing else. We got um, a really interesting Q&A coming up next time talking about Meb's 15 to $20 million fintech ideas. You can also hear Meb rant about what to look for when applying to a, uh, to a new company, a new, new job. Big time. All right. Is that it? That's it. Take us right. out. You guys send us um, emails. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh, as a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We mentioned a lot of links in this one. Other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you hate the show, if you love it, leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.